Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Marshall Brown. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be teaching on the passage that Molly uh, so artfully just read for us. I do want to just a quick note to parents. Uh, the story you just heard, the text you just heard was kind of PG-13. The sermon will be PG-13. I won't go beyond PG-13. I won't go beyond the, what was in the text, but just FYI for parents if I don't think there's anything. But, uh, you know, just fair warning. Um, uh, but I do want to say welcome to our church, Grace Presbyterian Church. Uh, the name on the door says a lot about what we believe. We believe that the grace of God in Christ changes everything. And so this church exists for different types of people. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is a church where you can expect to be welcomed and taught in the faith, and hopefully you can grow in a vibrant faith and even grow more than you have. But this also is a church that exists for those who don't believe and are investigating Christianity. Maybe you're skeptical, maybe you've left the faith. This is a place where we want you to be able to try on. Christianity to ask all of your questions. But there's another group of folks that this church exists for, and that is those who have been burned by other Christians and by the church, maybe even. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but you're just barely holding on and want this to be a place where you can sit back, take your time as you make your way back to faith and back to the people of God, which is all to say that God is a church that welcomes all people no matter where they are or where they come from. We're here because we believe Jesus is the Son of God resurrected from the dead, and he is the great hope of the world. So with that as preload, let me pray for this passage as we look at Joshua chapter to. Our great God, we come to uh, an ancient story, a wild story, and we pray that despite the distance of time and language and location, that you would teach these central and eternal truths uh, to our hearts once again, that what uh, Rahab learned, we would learn again and again. So God, would you be with us? And I pray that through the preaching of your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Now the point of a sermon introduction is to get your attention or to draw your interest in, okay? In some stories, they don't need that much of an introduction to get your interest. I mean, two spies walk into the home of a prostitute, okay? I don't think I need to get your attention. That pretty much qualifies. This is a fascinating fascinating story. We have espionage. We have a strong woman with a checkered reputation. There's intense negotiations. There's a secret escape outside a wall, outside a window. There's the prospect of a battle, and there's a three-day hideout in the wilderness. This has all the elements of a great story. Uh, perhaps you like certain films. This is like a John Le Carre film, you know, the spy who came in out of the hole. Imagine you're in East Berlin and there's, you know, like a, a brothel on the border. You're trying to negotiate. Maybe it's the bar in Star Wars uh, or the saloons of Tombstone or one of the great westerns, right? Now, interestingly, this story is not just interesting. There's actually a lot of historical uh, this story has long, strong hints of, of being historical. There's archaeological evidence, first of all, from the 12th through the 14th century BCE, the 12th through the four, of, of a house like this within the wall, and even an inn like this where people would come. Also, they're not just archaeological, there are other ancient sources that mention spies holding up in inns or in the home of prostitutes. And then Hammurabi's Code, some of you would remember Hammurabi's Code, maybe from your history class or Western Civ or something like that, Hammurabi's Code, one of the first law codes, right, not in the Bible. This is a quote from Hammurabi's Code. If scoundrels plot together in an innkeeper's house and she does not seize them and bring them to the palace, the innkeeper shall be put to death. Okay, so ancient sources, archaeological, immensely interesting, but there's a question. And that's this, why is this story included, why is this story included in the record of Scripture? First of all, 
if you're trying to enhance the reputation of Joshua, the, a book after this, it's named after Joshua. In chapter 1, think about this, in chapter 1, it, God had promised to Joshua, you will take the land, I'm giving you the land. And then here in chapter 2, does it seem like he's hedging his bets, maybe not so strong a leader, not so strong a faith because he's sending out spies. Did God promise it or not? Does he need the spies? And then there's this. These spies, they seem to be directly disobeying a word from God in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20 to not include any of the Canaanites. They seem to be directly disobeying God's word by saving the life of a Canaanite and her family. And then there's this. If you're trying to teach a morality tale, if you're trying to teach people morality, this story makes a hero out of a prostitute who tells a lie. Okay? Not much of a moral story, right? But the biggest question of all, is this story is unnecessary for the larger story. You don't need this story literarily or historically to make sense of the book of Joshua or of redemptive history. You don't need this story. So why is it included? In the fall, I made the tri- a trip to the south side of Chicago for the first time. to. I'd been to the University of Chicago, but to visit the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute, now called the OI. They're trying to change their name, not sure what they're going to call it. So it's the Oriental Institute, the OI. They call them both. It's a fascinating place. I hi- I mean, if, you like, if you're a little bit nerdy and like me, I, I, it was fascinating. Over 350,000 artifacts dating back thousands of years. Fascinating place. And much of it covering times and places not far removed from our story. Actually, some of the sites that they excavate are not far from what we're looking at here. There's great evidence of the cross-pollination of cultures and conquest, just like in this story, and even of types of homes like we find Rahab inhabiting here in Joshua chapter 2. But the OI, the OI they, have this, they have a couple great marketing taglines. And one of their great marketing taglines is this. Somewhere in 10,000 years of history, there are answers. Somewhere in 10,000 years of history, there are answers. In this story, which is 3,300 years old, 3,300 years old, There are answers to two of the most important questions that are central to your life and to mine. So why is this story included? Because it teaches two things that are so central for you, for me, for all of us. First, the nature of faith, the nature of saving faith. And then second, and more importantly, the character of our God. And so that's my outline this morning. This is at some level a meat and potatoes sermon with a great story wrapped around it. The nature of faith and the character of God. First, let's look at the nature of faith. Before I look at that, I do want to retell the story a little bit, just so you can remember what it was that Molly read to us a moment ago. Have your, uh, you can be kind of skimming along in your bulletin or in your Bible. Remember chapter 1, God has promised to give the land to the Israelites, but they are called, and they are called to possess that land. Okay, that's chapter 1. So right now, I wish I had a map with me. They are on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and they're looking across to the west to the land of Canaan. They are at a place significantly called Shittim. Verse 1, Shittim. Now, Shittim was a place where 40 years prior, the Israelites had engaged in sexual immorality that had cost them the chance to go into the land. So just 40 years before, they had failed at this very geographic place. There's also an echo of another old story before their time, and that is the story of the sending out of the spies in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, when Moses sent out 12 spies, actually included Joshua, and here Joshua, instead of sending 12 spies, sends two spies, okay, with special instructions to check out Jericho. 
they go to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. It's very clear, I'm not going to belabor the point, it's very clear from the Hebrew, the original, that they did not go there for immoral reasons. They went there for political and strategic reasons, okay? They went to the house because it was likely a lodging house, like a hostel or an inn, okay? Um, You know, throughout history, places like this, inns or taverns, are places where you might find, first of all, a fifth column, some people that would support you in your ensuing conquest, but they're also the kind of places where vices fester. I mean, even if you were to go to one of the nice hotels in downtown Chicago this afternoon and to the bars, I mean, you know that the other table's ready. There's likely to be some shady things going around, whether the business or all types of morality, right? This is the place where vices fester. And so this is the place they go to get information, to figure things out, to talk to people who might be disgruntled with the situation in Jericho. Okay, now these spies don't appear to be very well trained. They're not exactly CIA-level spies uh, because really quickly they are found out by the local king who sends for them. But Rahab has hidden them on her flat roof. Her roof is flat, and she has hidden them under stalks of flax. So when the agents of the king come looking for these spies, she diverts their attention by lying that she does not know where they have gone. She says, yes, they came, but I don't know where they've gone. After the the agents of the king have left, she goes up to the spies. She confesses her faith in the living God. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then she says, basically, I have been kind to you. Please be kind to me and save my life when you come to destroy our city. They agree on the further the condition that she not alert the authorities. She lets them out. She's in the, her house is in the wall of the city. She lets them out by a rope down to the ground. They go back to Joshua, and that's the story from Joshua chapter 2. Rahab, great story, right? You could make a movie out of this, a miniseries even. Now, Rahab and this story, interestingly, are cited three times in the Christian New Testament. This is from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, cited three times in the New Testament. And every time, Rahab is presented in a rather flattering light. Consider Hebrews chapter 11. If you were an Old Testament saint, the one place in the New Testament you'd like to find your name is Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. It's the Hall of Faith where all the great men and women of faith who really trusted God. You have Abraham. You have Sarah. You have Simeon. You have David. You have Joseph. Hebrews chapter 11. You want to be in that Hall of Faith, right? Here we have Rahab. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute, one of the great lines in scripture, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what I want us to see in the nature of faith is that Rahab's faith is robust. It is robust. When theologians talk about faith, they say there are three aspects of faith, three important aspects of faith. There is knowing the truth, there is assenting to the truth, And then there's third, living by the truth. Knowing, assenting, or organizing your life around it, and living by the truth or acting on it. And we see all these three with Rahab. Let's look at them. First, we see Rahab knows the truth. Read with me again. Look with me, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Now, Rahab and apparently all of Jericho and the land around them have heard what God did for the Israelites. 
specifically how they had passed out of Egypt across the Red Sea, engulfing Pharaoh. They'd heard of that, and they'd also heard how fierce the Israelites were in battle, taking down two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. Now hear this clearly. Faith is more than believing and having the facts. It's more than knowing the facts, but it is not less than the facts. Rahab has heard the facts about God. She has heard the facts specifically about God's might, his power, and she has believed. She knows the facts. The facts are the basis of faith. Now, for a lot of, there's, there's a lot of spiritual people who say they believe in God and are Christians. But you know what? I always wonder, do you believe the facts? Do you believe what God's word says about the story? This is the reason that the only thing that you have to believe, the only thing you have to believe to join this church is the Apostles' Creed. It's actually the only thing we ask you to believe to come to the Lord's table, the facts of the, Lord's, uh, the, the Apostles' Creed. If you have your bulletin, look with me. Page 10, we're going to say it in just a few minutes, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father. And it's a list of facts, essentially. This is a creed that is 1,700 years old, agreed upon across denominations and through time. These are the facts. You see, it is possible, now hear me clearly, it is possible to believe those facts and not have saving faith. James says, even the demons believe and shudder. It is not possible to have saving faith without believing those facts. Do you hear the difference? It is not possible to have saving faith without believing those facts. The facts matter. And if you were to ask which facts matter, that's an important question. I would say the facts that matter are the facts of the Apostles' Creed. Okay? And let me just say one more thing before I move to the next thing. If you are investigating Christianity... That's why I said this at the beginning of the sermon. If you're investigating Christianity, the facts do matter. You should care. So take the time, ask the questions. Yes, there is a movement of faith. Faith seeks understanding. You're not going to get it all. You're not going to understand it all. But the facts matter, so it's okay to take your time, ask questions of Nick, of me, of others on staff, if you need to know more. It's a place where you can hopefully do that. But let's keep looking, because faith does not just know the facts. Secondly, faith assents to those facts. It assents to the truth. And here we see Rahab orients her life around this truth. The key verse in many ways of the whole chapter is verse 11. Let me read it for us again. As soon as we heard it, Rahab says, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now Rahab lived in Canaan, the land of Canaan. The land of many gods, Baal and Asherah and Moloch, each of whom, each of those gods claimed to be the God of heaven and earth. And Rahab here in verse 11 is saying, your God, Israelites, your God is the true God, the living God, the one who is, over, who is above heaven and beneath the earth. She is confessing her faith. Now just a moment ago in the story, we'd seen her commit treason against Jericho by hiding the spies. Here we see her committing blasphemy against the gods of her country, against the gods of Jericho. Rahab is saying, in my convictions, I am with you. I am an Israelite. Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is God's covenant name. Yahweh is my God. Now, I'm not going to talk much about Rahab's lie, as it's called, that she told the king's agents. I'm not going to talk about it primarily because the Bible does not talk about it or make much of it. But some have said, and I'm not sure I fully agree with them, but some have said that Rahab is not lying here. 
because she has transferred her loyalty, follow me, she has transferred her loyalty to Israel and the facts of warfare and the rules of warfare now govern her interactions. And so when she talks to them like this, she's not lying. And this is just warfare. Now, I'm not sure I completely believe that interpretation, but what I think is absolutely clear is that Rahab is assenting to the lordship of God. She's saying, I'm with him, I'm with that God, and I am with the people of Israel. She is functionally making an oath, a covenant, with God and with his people. And as we'll see in just a moment, she has become fully integrated into the nation of Israel. So she doesn't just know the truth, she assents to it. She stakes her life on the truthfulness of her confession, rearranges her life around that truth. And it's one thing to, to, to consider and that is, is your life reoriented around the truth of the gospel? Could, you, could people say of you that your, your life only makes sense because you believe in Jesus? Rahab's life only makes sense if she has this kind of faith, if she assents to this kind of belief. So we first see that faith knows the truth. Second, that faith assents to the truth. But third, we see that a living faith lives the truth. It acts. It acts on it. Because Rahab believes in the living God, she does something. She works. She hides the spies. She lies to cover for them. She helps them escape. She acts. Now, Rahab is cited. The, other, one of the, the second reference that uh, we find Rahab in the New Testament is in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Did a sermon series on James not too long ago. In James chapter 2, Rahab is allied and put alongside Abraham, the great father of the faith, as an example of someone whose faith works, that their faith and their deeds were working together. This is James chapter 2, verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. In the same section, James says this, that faith without works, faith without works, is dead. He also says, James does, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, friends, Rahab is a living faith. It's a costly faith. It's a faith that acts for other people. Now, it's worth noting that James 2, where Rahab is mentioned, the context, the context is that faith works by loving the poor and the vulnerable. That's the context for James chapter 2. Do you love the poor because faith works? Faith works. Now, I think it's worth noting, just real quickly, you know, it's real easy to be hard on someone who's a prostitute. But nobody grows up wanting to be a prostitute. Their circumstances of life have driven someone to this line of work, which is to say that there must have been something in Rahab's past, we don't know what it was, but that made her very vulnerable that made her exploitable. And I actually think that's what makes her tender to God and his purposes because she sees the mercy of God, okay? Just a little, I think for us, we got to think about this. A little current events aside, a little calendar aside, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And as Christians, a faith that works acts and cares for both, the most vulnerable, the least among us, the unborn. But it also pursues racial equality and justice for all. You see, because of God's character and his word, Christian faith has always been commended and committed to the most vulnerable among us. What does that look like in your life? 
But then there's this, and this just kind of came to me this morning as I was thinking about the sermon and praying it through. There's something that the theologians don't say enough about faith when it comes to Rahab, and that's this. The opposite of faith is fear. And Rahab's faith, what we really see in her faith is a, is a dogged courage. Because of what she believes about God, she has great courage that overcomes her fear. Think about her. She risked her life. You heard what Hammurabi's code said. She faced death by protecting these spies, by lying for them. She was a strong woman. She was a fa- it was because of her faith, though, what she saw of God. And I say this today because I see in our culture fear all around us. People are discipled by fear. They're immersed in fear. Some of us are fear of a pandemic, a disease that could kill us. Some of us are fear because we think our country is going a certain way. But let me say this. Perfect love drives out fear and faith drives out fear. There is no place for fear in the life of faith. There's no place for fear. I don't know what you're... I'm a fearful person. My wife can say, I'm a fearful person. I am. But I have to lean into this because the opposite of faith is fear. We have nothing to fear. God is, put yourself in Rahab's shoes and imagine how fearful she could have become. But what did she do? How did she conquer that fear? How did she conquer that fear? Well, this brings us to the real reason why this story is included in the Bible. Because far more beautiful, far more beautiful than Rahab's faith is the God in whom she places her faith. As you see, it's not just about the nature of her faith. More significantly, it is about the character of the God in whom she places her faith. And before I talk about the relationship, and before I talk about the character of God, I need to talk about the relationship of faith to God. This is an illustration I've used before and I will use again because it's helpful. You have told me so, I'm going to continue to use it. But imagine that this afternoon that you needed to get on your roof. Maybe you needed to shovel some snow. And I, this is an demonstration of a ladder, okay? And imagine two ladders. One is a worn-out, decayed, you know, it's been eaten by the termites. It is going to fall apart. Somebody, somebody puts their weight on it right over here. And then over here you have an OSHA standard Home Depot strong metal ladder, brand new, okay? And on this one, the old Arnold Schwarzenegger, not the new one, like Arnold Schwarzenegger 40 years ago, strong muscle man. He's going to climb this ladder to get on the, th- on the roof. And then you have a 7-year-old little boy who's going to climb this. Who's getting on the roof? What matters, you see, friends, is not the strength of the person welling up their faith. What matters is the strength of what we put our faith in. The metal ladder and the analogy. God, in this case, it's not that Rahab's faith is great. It's the one that she puts her faith in. God, his character, that is what is strong. And that is where strong faith comes from. Because it's not so much about the nature of your faith and how you feel and think and believe. It's the nature of the God in whom you put your trust, the object of your faith. So let's see that God. Because Rahab tells us about him. She sings, she highlights God's might. She worships God's majesty. She delights in God's mercy. Let me rehearse this some a little bit. Joshua chapter 2 shows us what God has done, his might. As she tells us, he delivered the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. He defeated their enemies before them, and here they are on the cusp of defeating the whole land. They're in Jericho, the spies are, because of the, the conquest that is about to begin. The might of God, the majesty of God. But even more than his deeds among humans is his majesty, his greatness above all the other gods. Verse 11, he is the true God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. 
So he's not just majestic and mighty, though he is also a God who delights, who delights to show mercy. Verse 12, look how she pins her hopes upon God. Rahab says, now please swear to me that by the Lord as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Now, the, wor- the reality is this word, kindly, is on her lips because that word is a word that is at the heart of who God is himself. The word is, it's translated kindly here, it is the word said. It is often translated graciousness or mercy or loving kindness. And if you look what she says there in verse 12, she basically says, I have been kind. Now, God, be merciful to my family. God, have mercy on my family. This is a super important word in the Old Testament because it's mostly used of God himself. It's how God describes himself. In Exodus chapter 34, God says this when he's talking to Moses. He says, the Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is who God is. He is a kindly God. He is a God of loving kindness, and he delights to show loving kindness to outcasts like Rahab, to the immoral like Rahab, to the disadvantaged like Rahab. Friends, you see, this story is here. Why is it here? This story is to magnify and to show the greatness, the lavishness of the love and the mercy of God. Our God is lavish, is lavish in mercy. Because at the end of the day, that's what this story is about. Showing God, showing the character of who he is, the wideness of his mercy. Because follow me through scripture. Follow me through scripture. This story is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. That through Abraham, through his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. This is the beginning of that promise, the fulfillment of that promise. But this story also points forward in the New Testament to Pentecost. When the gospel will be for all tribes and all nations. And it points forward to the end of time, the great coming attraction when people from all over the world, all tongues and tribes, all types of people who have placed their faith in the living God will stream to the throne and worship before the Lamb who is slain. It points forward to those. But I got even better news. It points forward to something else. It points forward to something else because the third instance of Rahab being quoted in the New Testament or cited in the New Testament is in the very opening verses, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, when it says that Rahab, is a great-grandmother of Jesus. That she married a man named Boaz, who, by the way, was very kind to another vulnerable woman named Ruth. But that Rahab is in the line of Jesus. He takes Rahab and he puts her in the line of Jesus. She's the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Talking about being integrated into the people of God. And think about this. You see, Rahab appealed to God because of his might for his mercy. But Jesus... Her great-great-great-great-grandson displayed both might and mercy. And we appeal to him for his mercy so that we might know his power, the power of the resurrection, that we might experience it. You see, friends, her great-grandmother, this story points forward to her great-great-grandson, to Jesus who is our hope. So today, do you feel like an outsider? Rahab's story is for you. Her great-grandson, Jesus, he's for you. He is on offer. Not only, did he put, not only did he save Rahab, he put her in the line of Jesus. Maybe you feel dirty. Maybe you feel immoral. Maybe it's something you've done or said, your past, your present, people you have hurt, 
Rahab's story is for you. God took Rahab, a pagan prostitute, and made her a grandmother of Jesus. God loves to write new stories. And he can and is writing new stories today. So how do you get a great faith? You look to God, but more importantly, you look to Jesus in whom mercy and might come together. In whom love and faithfulness find their place. The might, the majesty, the mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This, friends, is the story of Rahab. And it is a beautiful, beautiful story. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for including this story, for what we see of this beautiful and strong woman, but more importantly, God, what we see of your beauty, of your grace, of your loving kindness. Thank you, God. I pray that as we walk out these doors in just a moment, we would believe more firmly and more fully in this, your goodness to us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.